a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So, you ready to dive right into the deep end of the wrong think pool today? I don't know why, but this has been on my mind and so I'm going to run with it. When I when I get a strong impression that, hey, here's what I need to be talking about, I tend to act on that. It's not like I'm some kind of oracle, but just, I don't know, something stick in my heart. And I, I'm just guessing, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that you may be one of those folks out there who just feels this need to to step up and in some way make a difference. And I don't mean, you know, you're going to change the whole world in one fell swoop. I mean just that there's something you could be doing or maybe even that you should be doing. And it's it, maybe it's something that makes you uncomfortable to even think about because it's going to require you to maybe change what you're doing right now or step up, step out of the comfort zone, you know, get out of the armchair and actually uh, participate. And that's that's a totally normal reaction. I think we've all been there. I think many of us uh, experience it over and over again. You've, you've you get up and do something, and hey, that worked out really well. That was really cool. And then the cycle starts all over again. So without too much dramatic lead in here, I'm just going to throw this uh, this idea out there and, and see if it sticks. It feels as though our freedoms are under constant assault, and then from a number of different directions. And I know there are people out there for whom freedom is a priority. It's not just like, yeah, it's cool, yeah. I, I could live with it, or I could take it or leave it. I mean, people for whom it's it's a priority to the point that they're they're willing to give up comfort. They're willing to be misunderstood, called names, and and you know shouted down by people who don't place as high of a priority on it. In fact, uh, you know, truth be told, it seems like a lot of society's been trained to see anyone who stands up for freedom, even if you're standing up for everybody's freedom, somehow you're selfish. That is so selfish, you know, to, to put freedom up there as a priority. And yet without it, you know, nothing else really matters. It, you know, personal liberty and that freedom of conscience, those are the highest goods. Everything else follows from those things. If you lack personal liberty, if you lack freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of association, all of those things... Well, the rest of it really doesn't matter that much because it means you are under some kind of external control that prevents you from actually living your life, pursuing happiness, becoming whatever it is that you wish to become. So I want to throw this idea out there for those who are looking for a way that they can make a difference because I know right now the problems seem overwhelming. I mean, you know, just I'm looking at the news headlines and you know, I kind of wonder how many of these are just, you know, for the sake of alarming us. Well, what's this? A Chinese spy balloon hovering over our nuclear missile fields? Oh, wow. That's that's interesting. You know, when something like that comes out, my first reaction is, okay, why are they telling us this? Is this to generate fear or to otherwise get us on edge? But my point is there's a lot going on monetarily, financially. People are feeling the pinch of rising inflation and economic instability. Governmentally, what do I say? The corruption is uh, is almost absolute. There are some good people serving in elected offices, but government has largely ceased 
to operate in the interest of protecting our God-given rights, which is the whole reason it was called into existence in the first place. So how do you make a difference? Okay, don't laugh when I suggest this, but you could always create a support group for freedom. I know. Well, what exactly is a support group going to do? Sit around and complain about, you know, everything that's going on? We already have one of those. They meet at the bar every other night. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, there are people who, who you know, for, for whom complaining on social media or complaining at the bar with their friends, that may be, you know, where they kind of get it out of their systems. I'm talking about something a little bit different. I'm talking about getting together with like-minded friends or like-minded community members or acquaintances. You're going to become friends over the course of this, but the idea is get together with other people who likewise cherish freedom and the principles and the practices of liberty and teach each other. Now, I'm speaking from experience. This is something that uh, I actually had the opportunity to participate in a few years ago. And, you know, the funny thing about it, it sounds so clandestine at first. You know, it's like, well, (laughs) you know, we met early in the morning in a nondescript office in the warehouse district of town, you know, on certain weekends to conduct our business, you know. And, and it wasn't that we were hiding from anybody. It was just that, you know, early Saturday mornings was when most of us had time. And we were a group that, I, I don't know how you would describe us. We had working class people as well as professionals. We had a doctor. We had a police officer. We had a farmer, a couple of builders and contractors, truck driver, teacher, mechanic, a psychologist, an attorney. It's a pretty good mix of people. We kept our group fairly small. I think we had probably... 12, maybe, at tops. But we came together because all of us shared an abiding love of liberty and a desire to use our influence more wisely within our respective communities. We weren't all from the same town. And we had a great mentor who had had told us, you know, this is what you guys really ought to be doing is getting together and teaching each other. His suggestion was get together and come prepared to teach something that you have learned since the last time you've, you've met. And so that's what we would do. And sometimes I think on average, we would have between maybe eight to 10 individuals show up for these meetings. We didn't do them every week, but we would get together. Um, Now in our case, there was a pretty strong faith component. We would start and we would end each one of our meetings with prayer. And when I say prayer, it was, it was, we would sincerely on our knees, ask God, help us, to become better influencers and better instruments in your hands to, to, to help good things happen in regards to the, the freedom in our communities. And I, I understand if you don't have, if you're not a person who comes from a faith background, that may sound like, well, that's really weird. But I believe that really made all the difference for us. And we would get together, and if there were, say, eight of us, and we had two hours set aside for meetings, so we would divide up the time. Okay, eight of us, 15 minutes available to each one of us to take that time to teach something to the others. And it could be, um, I remember one one friend had uh, been at a garage sale and found a book on how to build a root cellar. That was interesting stuff that we actually wanted to know. How could we do that? And, and somebody else in the group was, well, look, I have access to building materials. I have access to a, a little excavator. If any of you are interested in doing that, we could do that. 
Sometimes people would uh, would bring out their scriptures or they would bring out their journal and say, this is something I've been pondering, or here's a quote that I read, you know, from George Washington's letters or whatever it was. Sometimes it pertained to current events. But the idea was each one of us came prepared to share something with the others. We discussed it. It's a, it's a thing called colloquia in which, you know, you can, you can get together. We talked about key pieces of legislation that were going on in our state or perhaps even in our communities, you know, policies that were being, ordinances that were being debated. We covered current events, key principles of liberty, self-sufficiency, issues that were unique to the communities. But at every step, we tried to make God a key foundation to what we were doing. We looked for, we discussed opportunities to better participate in local government. We tried to find ways to serve one another, to serve in our community. And I got to tell you, something happened along the way. And I don't know if it's my place to say this, but I think you would find something very similar would happen if you were to put this to the test and create your own support group for freedom. We hadn't been meeting for very long, maybe a year, maybe two years, when, when it just, it became very clear, there, there was purpose that was starting to distill on us. And I felt it to the strongest as, as we had finished, uh, we had finished our, our prayer at the end of one of our meetings. And I got up and I said, God, do you guys feel this? Do you feel what's happening here? And over time, what we found was opportunities came up for us to use our influence One was elected as a county. Actually, he was appointed as a county commissioner. He ran and lost in the election, but he so impressed the other county commissioners that when one of the county commissioners died suddenly of a heart attack, they said, this is the guy we need to replace him. Another became a city council member. Some ran for office. Most of us just, we, we became known to our elected officials to the point that elected leaders would approach us individually and ask us for our input on various local issues. Now, that doesn't mean they always agreed with us. But it's, it's, it's hard to describe how astonished and at the same time humbled we were to see how our personal influence was magnified through our efforts. And, and it really came from coming together with like-minded individuals with a sense of purpose. And I believe in large part it came from our willingness to call upon God to bless our efforts. So that's my recommendation. By the way, if you have questions on this, feel free to reach out to me. There's contact information on my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. I am happy to walk anybody through the process. You may have to do it slightly differently, but think about building a support group for freedom. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. By the way, I want to welcome a new sponsor to the program. It is my friend John Harvey from the Modern Conservative Podcast. Now, John does a terrific podcast, and he is a great voice of reason out there. But I want to direct you to my uh, sponsor links. And you'll find these at the bottom of my show notes. Click on the TCMP Nation link. And you will find that John has some really, really cool merchandise. And, and it's not even just limited, you know, hey, for Americans, if you're feeling good about it. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's cool. He's, he's got international presence here. 
But if you love freedom, if you're somebody who uh, resonates with it, you don't mind showing it, click on that link and see what you what you can see. He'll make it worth your while. If you uh, if you spend 100 bucks on merchandise, he will give you a free gift. I believe it's a really cool titanium RFID-protected wallet. And uh, you get uh, free shipping as well. So details are there at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Let's talk about digital currency. I've been hearing rumors, and actually I've talked to, to people who are in the know who've said, oh yeah, you know, the Federal Reserve has, has been exploring how to roll out a new digital currency. And from a convenience standpoint, I know most uh, people would probably say, well, that sounds really good, you know. No worrying about carrying paper, not having lots of cash on hand, which, you know, could be an attraction to thieves. But there are some downsides. In fact, I've got an article here. This is from Justin Haskins, published in Newsweek. Biden's plan for a digital dollar is a massive threat to freedom. Now, this is an opinion piece, but listen to some of the points that he makes here. I believe this was published, yeah, this was published back in March last year. He says, on March 9th, the Biden administration issued a sweeping executive order directing a laundry list of government agencies to develop plans to regulate cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, as well as to produce a detailed plan to study the potential for the potential creation of a central bank digital currency, or CBDC, for the United States. Holy cow, that's been that's already been almost a year. Now, if the federal government and Federal Reserve were to ultimately issue a CBDC, it would be the first time in a century that America has released an entirely new currency. Justin Haskins says, although the executive order's language leaves the door open for federal agencies to recommend against the creation of a digital dollar, the evidence strongly suggests this will not occur and that the White House will formally propose a plan for a digital currency by the end of the year. I'm not sure if they got that plan proposed by the end of 2022, but I know it's very much in the works. Justin Haskins says the Federal Reserve has already studied the possibility of rolling out a digital currency. It released a detailed report about digital currencies earlier in 2022 that served as the first step in a public discussion between the Federal Reserve and stakeholders about central bank digital currencies. Now, there's no reason for the White House to ask for yet another report on digital currencies unless it's to gear up for big legislative change. Biden's executive order even lays out a timeline for when the Attorney General, Secretary of the Treasury, and Chairman of the Federal Reserve should provide the White House with a legislative proposal for a digital currency. That would be within 210 days of the order, or about seven months. So, in some respects, he says a digital dollar would be similar to our existing print currency. The Federal Reserve would continue to set policies and interest rates tied to the currency. People would be able to pay vendors with their existing bank accounts and credit and debit cards. However, there are some substantial differences. For instance, a digital dollar would by definition not exist in print form. So once the transition to a digital dollar is complete, you wouldn't be able to go to a bank or to the ATM and get physical cash out of an account containing your digital currency. More importantly, he says, a digital currency would likely be designed in a way that would give government and or the Federal Reserve substantial control over its use and supply. This is where it starts to get dangerous. The Federal Reserve could, for example, simply create more digital dollars with the push of a button and distribute them at the drop of a hat. 
Similarly, it could just as easily take digital dollars away from banks through a variety of monetary tools. Now, here's the most chilling part, though. Digital dollars could be easily tracked by banks, federal agencies, and the Federal Reserve. They could also be programmed to control the kinds of things that people can buy, how much could be purchased at a single time, or any number of other variables. In short, the development of a digital currency could present the most dramatic expansion of federal power in history, depending on its design. So in the coming weeks and months, advocates of a digital dollar might allege that all of these concerns are just speculative. They'll probably call them conspiracy theories. But there are good reasons to think a digital dollar like the one the White House is considering would be used to micromanage the U.S. economy and, by extension, the whole of society. I mean, this is what China is doing with its uh, social credit score. So Justin Haskins says the Biden administration's recent executive order plainly states that financial inclusion and equity, as well as limiting climate change and pollution, must be key considerations in the development of a new central bank digital currency and digital asset regulatory schemes. Further, during a background call with the press about the executive order, a senior administration official, his or her name was not published in the administration's call transcript, promised that the White House will continue to partner with all stakeholders in the development of a new new digital currency, including industry, labor, consumer and environmental groups, international allies, and partners. Now, why would discussions about the use of a digital dollar involve such a wide range of stakeholders unless the Biden administration planned on making that CBDC programmable? He says the development of a digital currency should worry Americans everywhere, regardless of their ideological and political views. Because once a digital currency is in place, government and or Federal Reserve officials would have more power than ever to control, track, and coerce individuals and U.S. businesses, likely without needing new laws approved by Congress. Most Americans don't want government and the Fed to have that kind of power over their lives. But Justin Haskins says the question is, will enough people find out and stand up against the digital dollar before it's too late? It's kind of a daunting prospect, wouldn't you say? I mean, look, I I understand it will be dismissed. Well, that just sounds like conspiracy theory stuff. But you know what? After the last couple of years where so many of the things the conspiracy theorists have, uh, have brought up have turned out to be true. You know, it's almost to the point where if someone says, well, that's just a conspiracy theory, maybe it deserves a closer look. Maybe that deserves a little bit uh, more scrutiny and vetting on the part of whomever's checking it out. I guess it still puts the responsibility on your shoulders and my shoulders, right? If we want to if we want to suss out what's true from what isn't, that's on us. But I got a really bad feeling about this this whole concept for a central bank digital currency. I think I first read about this probably close to 30 years ago. There was an investment guy, actually he sold gold and other things, Don McIlvaney, and he had his intelligence advisor. And You know, Don McIlvaney was definitely more of a uh, pessimist in terms of what he saw going on, but um, some, I'm sure, would have dismissed, oh, he was just a conspiracy theorist. But one thing he pointed out, was he said, if you want to see what electronic fascism looks like, just wait until someone decides to introduce a digital currency. 
Now, this was like the mid-90s when he was talking about this. So the Internet was just barely becoming, you know, a a common thing that uh, people would have access to. But his point still stands, and his warning still stands, and that is when government controls the currency like that, and when especially it's a programmable currency, every dime you make, every dime you spend will be accounted for, taxed, counted, and could be controlled in the sense that if it's paired with your identity, as in your identity becomes a government-granted privilege... All it takes to make you an unperson, in the words of Orwell, is the click of a mouse. Good luck, you know, gassing up your car. Good luck paying your rent. Good luck buying groceries. Your money's no good here. It's going to take on a whole different meaning. Or at least it could. Based on what we've seen in the last couple of years, do you think that's out of the realm of possibility? Because I don't. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, understanding the difference between education and schooling, it's a a pretty essential skill for our time. Because a lot of people conflate the two things. Well, it's the same thing. No, it's not. Education is something that takes place uh, long after your schooling is done and actually can take place on a continual basis right up until the moment you draw your last breath. But I want to share with you an article from Annie Holmquist. You ought to take a good look at her her substack. It's Annie's Attic, annieholmquist.substack.com. This article is titled, Education Discipleship is the Way to Fix the Mess Our Schools Made. Subtitle says, the older generation has a lot to offer the younger ones, especially when it comes to the skilled trades. She says, when a relative of mine retired and sold his auto transmission shop last year, My family knew that our days of reliable car repair served up with the family discount were likely over. It was time to move on to a different auto mechanic. The question was where to find one. Many Americans are asking a similar question these days because the United States is facing a massive shortage of skilled workers in 2023. That includes auto technicians. That's according to a report from NPR. Now, a major reason this shortage is occurring is that those in the Gen Z age bracket are turning their backs on the trades, choosing college rather than apprenticeships that teach them these practical skills. And Annie Holmquist says that's troubling, not only for the fact that we won't have the technicians we need to handle our plumbing, auto, construction, and other basic needs, but also because the next generation is losing its knowledge and ability to work with its hands, a skill we'll sorely miss whenever the seemingly inevitable societal crash comes. She says apprenticeships are often touted as a path to a reliable, good-paying job that helps young adults escape the crushing load of student debt that many face. Now, those reasons are legitimate and well worth bearing in mind. But, she says, in these times of change, new benefits of apprenticeships increasingly surface. For instance, since the pandemic, Annie writes, many young people work remotely on either a part-time or full-time basis, chained to their computers the whole day. Now, such an arrangement may seem convenient, but it has several negative drawbacks. For one thing, it isolates people, a fact that can lead to increased depression. This isolation diminishes the -the on-the-job learning and networking experiences offered by in-person work situations. 
factors greatly beneficial to young people just starting out in the working world. Research shows that these remote and flexible work arrangements also diminish performance, a fact that can reduce an individual's sense of worth or pride in his work. She says apprenticeships do, however, often get young people out into the real world, working with their hands to do productive things. They learn practical skills that will last beyond our computer age, while also learning the interpersonal skills that often suffer because so many young workers are continually looking at their phone screens. Hiding behind a tech device is difficult on an apprenticeship, for apprentices must learn how to have professional and mannerly interactions with others, not only those they work with, but also the customers they serve. She says apprenticeships also promise to help solve the identity crisis our society is experiencing, an element of which is the transgender trend. One of the reasons students get into transgender or abnormal lifestyles and interests is because they're searching for life purpose and have a desire to feel valued and needed. Accepting these lifestyles gives them approbation in our progressive-minded social media culture. In fact, she says it's possible that we would steer some young people away from these tendencies if we gave them life purpose in others, including their careers. Training teens to do a skill that many others need and can't do will give them value and the uniqueness they crave. Then she gets to the, con- the, the concept of education discipleship. Given the great potential and ever more pres- apparent uh, benefits rather these types of hands-on jobs offer, one wonders why more young people don't take advantage of them. One answer, given by pre-apprentice program leader Paul Iverson and paraphrased by NPR, is because such work was once typically passed down in families. In other words, families performed a type of education discipleship with older adults training younger ones in their areas of expertise. Writing in the Underground History of American Education, Former New York Teacher of the Year, John Taylor Gatto, labeled such discipleship as a way out of the fix we're in with schools, encouraging adults to get young students involved in a series of apprenticeships and mentorships to help them develop a calling and purpose in their life. And Annie says, that's where all of us come in. Maybe you're an older individual coming to the end of your career and horrified at the world your children and grandchildren are facing. Or perhaps you're just a middle-aged individual, busy in the heart of your career, but wondering what you can do to stem the tide of societal collapse. Well, she says the answer is to engage in some educational discipleship. Look around at the teens and young adults around you, your nieces, nephews, and grandchildren, kids at church, young people who live next door or down the road, and the kids in the local homeschool group. Observe them, without being a creeper, of course, and ask people who know them better which young people show promising talent or a good work ethic. Then, offer your services. Let these kids shadow you on the job. Take a Saturday or an evening to teach a handful of them the basics of your craft, whether it's carpentry or plumbing or auto mechanics. People always have a house project that needs doing. Volunteer to help others with your skills and bring a young person along and teach them to do the task while you're at it, killing two birds with one stone. This can work even in more white-collar jobs, as she learned when she was in high school when her piano teacher, a skilled classical pianist, insisted that she watch her teach one of her beginning students, observing when and how she taught certain musical techniques. So Annie says, I did this for a year, free of charge. And this observation laid the foundation for more than a decade of my own music teaching career, which, incidentally, helped pay my way through college. 
She says the thing is, the older generation has a lot to offer the younger ones, especially when it comes to the skilled trades. Let's not waste our time bemoaning the younger generation. Instead, let's begin doing some educational discipleship, working to repair the damage that our schools, broken families, and a battered society have inflicted upon tomorrow's bright lights. Doesn't that sound like a more productive way to to handle things than just, you know, get a haircut, straighten up, and fly right, you know? I know, it's it's tempting. The generation gap, I, I never really believed, you know, much about that until I started to experience it, and... Now I'm full on there. I am the old man who yells at clouds and <laughs> it's, I get it. I'm, I'm completely out of touch, but I see so much promise in these up and coming generations. And I think one of the, the biggest things that Annie refers to here, that this is what actually made, to, at least for me, the biggest difference in my life was to develop, to develop a calling and purpose in life. You'd be shocked at how many people really don't have a sense of anything that is uniquely theirs. And so, you know, when you, when you wonder, why do people get so burned out on jobs? Because they feel like that's really the only reason I'm here. I'm just here to go to work, sit in the cubicle, do the job, collect a paycheck, and go home and repeat the cycle over and over and over until I retire. And, you know, along the way, hopefully buy some nice toys, maybe take a nice trip or two, or otherwise, you know, pick up some of the material trappings of success. And I'll confess there was a time where I was content to just, yeah, ride that out. Yeah, that's what it's all about, you know, just, you know, build a build a rep, you know, build a career. But it, it really didn't have much direction. Then I was acquainted with uh, someone who, well, took the blinders off my eyes and, and basically showed me, as well as another group of people who were attending this particular seminar, it was called Face to Face with Greatness, and taught the value of reading old books and coming face to face with the great minds whose ideas have shaped Western civilization. And suddenly I realized, there's a lot of my life that I'm really not, uh, not putting any effort into. In other words, I'm, just, I'm being carried along by the current, and that's fun, it's great, I'm, it's been a great ride, pretty comfortable. But what if there was something more that I could be doing? What if there was something more than just simply making money and accruing title or acquiring titles and, you know, just trying to, to again, get those trappings of success that could show everybody, hey, look, I've made it. See, the key difference was I was introduced to the concept of what kind of impact will you have on the world? And that was a game changer for me. And I sure don't claim that, you know, by the gosh, I'm, you know, I'm this great influencer out there. I know I have influence. I really have no idea how much influence. I probably tend to underestimate it because the weight of responsibility would be kind of overwhelming. But I believe that every single one of us has influence. And I can tell you that the peace of mind, the sense of purpose, the, the sense of connectedness to my creator that came with, with accepting that sense of calling and developing that sense of calling and purpose in life, nothing has been the same since then. And I don't, I don't measure my success anymore by, well, am I keeping up with the Joneses? Is my car as nice as theirs? That kind of stuff doesn't matter as much. I want to know, is what I'm doing going to help someone who needs what I have to offer? And I understand, not everybody needs what I have to offer. But for those who do, 
I'm determined to give them the very best that I have. And I would encourage you to figure out how to do the same. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, let me just take a moment here to shamelessly plug my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Not going to cost you anything. I will ask for your email. I will not be sharing it with anybody. I won't be selling it or anything like that. I'm not going to spam you either. I will drop a copy of my daily show notes, Monday through Friday, into your inbox. You can uh, peruse them, look for interesting articles to read. I don't always get to the articles that I have listed in the show notes. I, you know, I have a finite amount of time to work with, and uh, so sometimes I don't get to all of them, but I promise you that I try to provide some good food for thought, something for your consideration, and hope that uh, maybe you'll take advantage of it. So I've noticed, as uh, as I catch my kids watching Hulu every so often, I notice, boy, the 1619 Project is front and center when it comes to, uh, you know, things that Hulu is trying to promote. And I've got some mixed feelings on this, because to me, this, this seems a lot like the current attempts to rewrite American history with a very clear Marxist slant, and uh, Hulu is definitely on board with it. So I got to tip my hat to the wonderful James Bovard, who has uh, written a wonderful article here for the New York Post, about uh, how the 1619 Project has teamed up with Hulu to vilify the founders and to vilify their reasons for what sparked the American Revolution. Bovard writes, The 1619 Project is back in the news with the release of the six-part Hulu series built around the claim that nearly everything that has made America exceptional grew out of slavery. Yes, they are kind of a one-note symphony on that kind of thing. Progressives have canonized the Nicole Hannah-Jones-led New York Times effort, which is being taught in more than 4,500 classrooms. But the project is riddled with faulty assumptions and factual errors that have been debunked across the ideological spectrum. By the way, if you are on Twitter, I would recommend not only following James Bovard, but Phil Magnus, M-A-G-N-E-S-S. Both of these uh, writers have done a remarkable job of publishing the truth, and Phil um, Phil is just, he is a, a machine for research and he's, he's a really great writer and he has called, uh, he's called, uh, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones to task more than once. And, and I think rightly so, because there's such a distortion here. As Bovard writes, the 1619 project's most harebrained, harebrained idea is that the American revolution was fought to preserve slavery. Now, he says, look, slavery was barbaric, especially in the more southern states, but there was little slavery in the northern colonies, and they would not have risked their lives for its preservation. The 1619 storyline could not have passed the laugh test unless many Americans were clueless on the British brutality that sparked the war. Arthur Schlesinger Jr., uh, President John F. Kennedy's court historian and a revered liberal intellectual, declared in 2004... Historians today conclude that the colonists were driven to revolt in 1776 because of a false conviction that they faced a British conspiracy to destroy their freedom. But the British imposition of martial law, suspension of habeas corpus, and censorship were not simply deranged fantasies of Thomas Jefferson. Slavery did help spark the revolution, but he points out it was a slavery by Parliament, a common derisive phrase in founding-era America. 
the Declaratory Act of 1766 announced that Parliament had, hath, and of right ought to have full power and authority to make laws and statutes of sufficient force and validity to bind the colonies and people of America, subjects of the crown of Great Britain, in all cases whatsoever. That does sound pretty slavish, doesn't it? That meant Parliament could never do an injustice to the Americans, since Parliament had the right to use and abuse colonists as it pleased. Bovard writes, law after law trumpeted Americans' legal inferiority to their masters. The Sugar Act of 1764 resulted in British officials confiscating hundreds of American ships, based on mere allegations that the ship owners or captains were involved in smuggling. To retain their ships, Americans had to somehow prove they had never been involved in smuggling, a near-impossible burden. Britain imposed heavy taxes on imports and issued writs of assistance entitling British soldiers to search any home for evidence that tariffs on tea or whiskey had been shirked. Massachusetts lawyer James Otis denounced those writs for conferring a power that places the liberty of every man in the hands of every petty officer. Britain prohibited Americans from erecting any mill for rolling or, or slitting iron. British statesman William Pitt exclaimed, rather, it is forbidden to make even a nail for a horseshoe. The Declaration of Independence denounced King George for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. Vermont patriots marched in 1775 against the British army under a flag depicting a pine tree, a symbol of British tyranny. Because pine was an excellent material for building ships, Parliament banned cutting down any white pines, claiming them all for the British crown without compensation. Historian Jonathan Seawall, writing in uh, 1846, claimed the conflict with Britain began in the forests of Maine in the contests of her lumbermen with the king's surveyor as to the right to cut and the property in white pine trees. The first major clashes of the Revolution occurred at Lexington Concord, Lexington rather, in Concord, Massachusetts, after British troops sought to confiscate colonial firearms. After British troops were cut to pieces at the 1775 Battle of Bunker Hill, British General Thomas Gage decreed that anyone found in possession of arms would be deemed guilty of treason. As Professor David Coppell notes, Britain planned to confiscate almost all the firearms in the colonies after suppressing the revolt. If it had succeeded, the colonists could have been subjugated to London for generations. So Jim Bovard says perhaps contemporary activists are blindfolded to the causes of our revolution because they perceive government as benefit, or as, as benevolent rather, if not an avenging angel. In contrast, it was a common saying in the 1770s, the restraint of government is the true liberty and freedom of the people. Americans took their lodestar from British philosopher uh, John Locke, who warned, he who attempts to get another man into his absolute power does thereby put himself into a state of war with him. African-American slavery was a profound injustice, says Bovard, and we should not downplay that abhorrent part of our nation's past, but Americans should never forget that their nation was forged in resistance to political slavery, to the claims by distant masters to unlimited power, and it's also a lesson to political elites in Washington and state capitals that, wa uh, that elites in Washington and uh, state capitals across the nation should heed. I sure like the way he puts it. That, uh, that pretty well covers it. Got a link to this in the show notes. Worth your time. Sit down, maybe reread it for yourself. Share it with your friends. 
if it strikes you as uh, something that uh, they would find beneficial as well. All right, one final note. This is kind of a tough subject. I mean, it's, it's not a pleasant topic. But I'm going to start with the question, could you survive a famine? I know, you're thinking, I could just run down to Costco and have everything I need to get me through tough times. But we've never experienced real famine. And I've got an article here from prepgroup.home.blog. This is from Milan Adams. How to survive a famine. Subtitle, economic collapse can lead to a breakdown of society and mass food shortages. Now, again, this this could be disturbing to some people. Some people may, might be like, I don't know, man, that's... That's pretty dark. I, it just may be too much for me. I maintain this is the kind of war gaming, if you will, playing the what if game. Well, what if there was a prolonged shortage of food or breakdown in the supply chain? How would I handle it? What could I do? From that standpoint, this is extremely helpful information on how to survive a famine, whether it's caused by electromagnetic poles and what happens when food starts to get scarce. You know, I mean, after after a day or two without food, your neighbors are going to probably resort to asking other neighbors for food and then begging if no one's willing to hand over very much. What happens if you have some neighbors that are completely unprepared? Maybe they band together with other neighbors and go after those who have, and guess what? If they don't see you out looking for food, begging for food, and just locking yourself in your home, well, they might suspect you're just sitting on a bunch of food. And if enough hungry, hungry people band together, they might try to take it from you by force. In fact, after about three days of your neighbors going hungry, it's really possible that when someone mentions pets and there's still no food, there's a good chance that uh, dogs and cats will be on the menu. Again, this is not a pleasant thing to consider. But should the situation ever arise, this is stuff you would be glad you know. How to have stocks of food and water to combat famine. Uh, what a modern day famine looks like. What it takes to survive a famine. How to grow food during a famine. I know we think, well, I'll just plant a garden then. Okay, times were pretty good, at least the last couple of years. But I got to tell you, planting a garden, it's a lot of work. How, would, how, how much work do you think it would be if there were hungry people about? What do you know about hunting, trapping, fishing? Would you be willing to eat birds, snakes, insects? How do you store food if you are able to procure it or grow it? Okay, I'm really not trying to throw a big wet blanket over, you know, your happiness here, but I'm thinking this is very useful information. That's why I'm including this article in today's show notes. I hope you'll check it out for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show.